So have some fun. Dave, thanks for coming on, my friend. I appreciate you doing this. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. So we have a problem here, bro. I wanted to have you on to talk about your awesome book, Mad Travelers, A Tale of Wanderlust, Greed, and the Quest to Reach the Ends of Earth. But then I started to do some research on you, and your non-author life is just as fascinating as this book, man. So we got to talk about that. Cool with you? Uh, sure. We can talk about whatever you like. I like all the jerseys you have in your studio, too. Oh, yeah. All the recent guests. Whoever comes on. Uh, the next recent guy comes out, someone gets off the – they get thrown out of the list. <laughs> All right. So besides being an author, you're a former diplomat, photographer, sports fanatic. Am I missing anything else? Uh, that's a good start. That's a pretty good start. <laughs> Born in the Queen City, Buffalo, New York. I'm assuming diehard Bills fan. Oh, you got to be. If you're born in Buffalo, you, you're, you're there. And not only that, but all of your descendants, my children are big Bills fans too. Now, are you losing hope as a real fan that you're ever going to see a Bills win the Super Bowl? Are they like becoming the Cubs, like the lovable losers, or are you just getting like beyond frustrated? In answer to your question, am I, lo- am I getting frustrated and losing hope? Yes. I'll just very simply say yes. <laughs> I am, I've been getting frustrated for the last 45 years, I would say. Ooh. And am I losing hope? Yes, I'm losing hope because we have, a, we have, a, we have the best quarterback in the NFL. Ex- apologies to Mahomes and Chiefs fans. And yet the team is not smart enough to give him enough uh, talent around him on offense. The offensive line is a joke. Horrible. We've got one one great wide receiver and then a bunch of scrubs. Um, it's a mess. What other sports are you into? Not just a fan of are you. Like I know you're a big tennis guy. We'll get to that later. Yeah. Any other big sports you'd live and die for? All of them except for a few. Okay. Auto, race, auto racing, for some reason, I never got into that. Um Bowling, is that considered a sport? I'm not into that. Um, every other sport I'm into. I'm an absolute sports fanatic. Now, again, I'm always curious, like a Buffalo guy, who's your basketball team? Who's your baseball team? Because you can go either way. You can go Blue Jays or Yankees Mets. Or... My basketball team is the Buffalo Braves, even though okay. they left town many, many years ago. No, actually, I don't. I, I, the only basketball team I have are my Villanova Wildcats. I went to Villanova. Oh, congratulations so... on the titles. That is the – yeah, uh, we're living in the past. This yes. season was absolutely awful, though. We did not even make the tournament. We lost Horrible. in the first round. First round of the NIT, which was a disgrace. Horrible. Um, and our coach should be fired immediately, but that's another topic. I do not have an NBA team. For some reason, I just have never acquired one. I've moved around too many times, and I, it, it, I don't have an NBA team. Okay, and how about baseball? Baseball, I've changed allegiances a few times. I, I see you've got a Yankees hat behind you there. I grew up as a Yankees fan because okay. they were on television in Buffalo, and I could listen to them on radio. And I've become, I've come full circle, and I absolutely hate the Yankees now, and I'm a Rays fan. Okay, well, and you picked a hell of a year to be a Rays fan. What did they start? Thirteen and twelve. Uh, yeah, now they're fourteen and two. Not bad. What inspired a dude from Buffalo to venture out and do the diplomatic route? So I. I think there was a number of different things that got me interested in other countries. I think one of the things I attributed to is my parents giving me a shortwave radio when I was a little kid. Okay. I don't know if they were, you know, on sale at Radio Shack. Um, I'm probably dating myself here, even mentioning Radio Shack. I don't think those exist anymore. But um, yeah, I got a shortwave radio and I started to tune in radio stations from weird places around the world. And in those days, I don't know if people still do this or not, but you could send in a postcard like a frequency report saying that I too was able to tune into your radio station at this time or whatever, and you could get a postcard back. And I loved tuning into strange radio stations, even if I didn't understand the uh, the language they were speaking, and then getting a postcard in return uh, confirming that I was able to tune them in. 
Wow, that's wild. Mm-hmm. So did you know then at a young age, I'm going to travel, I'm going to start doing this. And eventually, because you were all over the world as a diplomat, right? Correct. Yes, I did want to do it from a pretty young age. Um, when I got out of college, they were not hiring hardly at all. They weren't even giving the foreign service exam for a few years. Mm-hmm. So I had to wait a while before I could actually get in. Um, but yeah, it was something that I wanted to do for a long time. And then once I did it, I realized that it wasn't exactly like what I thought it was going to be like. Um, working for the federal government <laughs> was not as much fun as I <laughs> thought it was going to be. And it wasn't, I thought it was just going to be a bunch of people who were into traveling and it turned out that it wasn't. What kind of training goes into that? I know the schooling, the, the exam and all that stuff. What kind of training goes yeah. into that? It depends what job you do, but there's all kinds of training. That's one of the benefits of being in the foreign service is you have all kinds of um, sort of periods of your career where you're in training, which means that you're sort of not really working and you're getting paid to not work or to learn languages, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, I spent six months, the U.S. Tax, the, the wonderful, generous U.S. taxpayers <laughs> paid, paid me to study Albanian, one of the most obscure and useless, sorry to all my Albanian friends, useless languages in the world um, for six months. And, you know, you study that language full time as your job for six months. And believe me, you still aren't speaking it very well at the end of that because it's a hard language. Mm-hmm. I got paid to do that for six months. Now, that was some cushy gig. Now, you were signed in North Macedonia. Did I read that? Or were you signed in Albania? No, I was assigned in at the time it was just called Macedonia. Okay. Now it is called North Macedonia. That is a country that has a an ethnic minority of Al- Albanian speakers, which are like 25 or 30 percent of the population. So I would liken this to someone being posted to the em- an embassy in the United States and being trained in Spanish instead of being trained in English. So I went out there oh, wow. okay. as a person trained in the minority language. I was the only person at the embassy who was a quote unquote Albanian speaker. <laughs> and like daily activities, what do you do there? Because I know it says it wasn't like what you wanted. You want to meet travelers like, hey, we have a weekend off. Let's go somewhere. What was your daily yeah. activities doing that? My daily activities were trying to plan my next trip. That was, <laughs> that was the problem. Uh, no, seriously. It depends what your job is in the U.S. Embassy. So I worked as a consular officer and as a political officer. So in both of those, you end up doing, you know, completely different things. As a consular officer, you spend a lot of time interviewing people who want to either come live in the U.S. or come visit the U.S. or people who say they want to come visit the U.S. and are really just liars and actually want to live here and weeding the one group out from the other. And you also assist Americans who get into trouble overseas Mm -hmm. and you do a variety of other things. You're sort of the public face of the embassy if you're a consul. Political is... You're reporting back to Washington um, about your country, of what is going on there. You're meeting leaders of those countries. You are telling the, the leaders of those countries how the United States feels about this, that, or the other thing. And you're harassing and browbeating them to agree with us at the United Nations and to vote with us and to do what the heck we want that country to do. Seems like a fun and interesting gig. Why'd you leave that? Well, it's kind of a long story, a confluence of factors, but I'll say long story short, when I was 30, how old was I uh, when I got sick? I was about 32 years old. I got MS, multiple sclerosis, for those of uh, people who know it. And um, it was difficult physically to do the job, you know, to do a stressful job with being quite sick. Um, That combined with my wife got pregnant with our first child when we were in Hungary, Budapest. And... um, it felt like a good time to leave. I did it for about six years. Um, and then later on, I tried to, you know, a few years later, I felt much better. My health improved. 
And um, I tried to get back into the Foreign Service. And interestingly enough, they approved me to re-enter, mm-hmm. but they would not give me a medical clearance to re-enter the State Department wow. because I had MS. So they would not let me back in. And um, there's actually, believe it or not, there's a class action lawsuit. I was not the person who filed it. I did not sue sue them over this, but somebody did. And I am a member of that um, class litigation because I was one of the people that was um, basically barred based upon a medical condition. That's why entering the career. So I did actually reconsider a few years after being out of the Foreign Service about going back in once my health improved. And um, though I was approved um, based upon my, you know, track record, I was and it's kind of like academia, the Foreign Service, and that they have a tenure system. And I was tenured, so I could have been you know as unproductive as imaginable and it would have been very difficult to fire me because i had tenure but after i left then i couldn't get back in did you always want to be a writer was it always a love of writing when did that love start no i didn't always want to be a writer um to be honest with you after i left the foreign service i thought that you know i was not quite sure exactly what i wanted to do i sort of left hastily i wasn't in good health at that time um and i stumbled upon writing as a career something that happened during the Great Recession when there were very few jobs out there. It was something that was easy to do. I could do it from my home, um, especially when I was in bad health. It was something that, you know, you didn't have to get even dressed up. You could do it sitting in your sweatpants. Um, You didn't even have to brush your teeth if you didn't want to, you know. So it was kind of easy. There's no barrier to entry to it. And I, I had a few good story ideas. The first story idea I had, I pitched it to the New York Times and they accepted it, which was shocking to me. Um, beginner's luck, I guess, but I didn't even know how to contact someone at the New York Times or what their email addresses were. So I actually sent a letter, a snail mail letter to the publication of the sports editor, Tom Jolly, who was the sports editor at that time. And uh, shockingly enough, he responded back to me. His secretary did actually saying that they would like to run that story. And then I felt sort of drunk on that success of getting a sports story in the New York Times on my first try. And I continued on from there. And 15 years later, I'm still doing this because like travel, it is sort of an addiction. I'm glad you you actually answered my next question. I was going to ask, do you remember the first piece of writing that got you pressed? So obviously it was the New York Times one. What was the article about? Yes, it was. Yeah, the article was about the longest rally in tennis history, which was 643 shots. It happened in 1984. And I just stumbled across this little tidbit. The story about it, because I was at a tournament in uh, the Leg Mason. I'm sorry, not the Leg Mason. It was the uh, tournament in Mason, Ohio. And there was a very long rally between Andy Murray and I forget who his opponent was, but they had a 57-shot rally, which I found to be remarkable until I Googled it. And, you know, I was thinking, oh, was that the longest rally in tennis history? Because it sure seemed like watching the match live. And it said, no, the longest was 643 shots. But the thing was, there was very few articles about it. There was very little information about it. It was just something that was in the record books, but no one had ever taken the time to really investigate what actually happened and how on earth did a 643-shot rally go. So I thought, I'm going to find those two women. There were two female players um, who conducted that rally. I'm going to locate them. And I realized by a stroke of good fortune that it was while I was researching this whole thing, the 25-year anniversary of that rally um, was coming up. Oh, wow. And I thought, so this will be great. I'll track down these women. And I'll write a story about it. I had no idea who would publish it or if anyone would publish it, but I wanted to satisfy my own curiosity. So Gene Hepner and Vicki Nelson Dunbar, those are the two women. They were very obscure players. I didn't know how to find them. I couldn't find – they weren't on Facebook. I found them via the phone book basically. There were like – I think there were four Gene Hepners 
And I sent snail mail letters to all four of them, just hoping it would get to the correct one. Um, and surprisingly enough, I was able to track down both of them. Vicki Nelson, I was only able to get find her because her son at the time was like a 12 and under tennis champion. He was like a 12-year-old boy who was a promising junior player. And in one of the articles I found about him, it mentioned his element, the name of his elementary school. So I called his elementary school and said, I'm looking for his mother and about this tennis rally. And they were like, what? They're like, well, we can't connect you to him, but we'll pass on a message to him to have his mother call you. And sure enough, she did. And then um, and I had my story. And now, David, it was legit. The rally was that long. Do they remember yes. it? Really? You got to send me that email. Uh, that how, article. I how, could they, how could they how could they forget it? Um, it was it was it, it not only was it a six hundred and forty three shot rally, but it occurred during a match, a straight set match that, that, that was only two hours. I'm sorry, there was only two sets, but it lasted six and a half hours long, their match, because there were many, many, many rallies like that. And up until the Gene, I'm sorry, up until the John, famous John Isner match at Wimbledon in 2013, which was 11 hours, but that one was stretched over three days. Theirs was, theirs was the longest match in tennis history up until that point. So John Isner displaced them from the record books. Their match is still the longest one that was played on a single day. And of course they remember it, and there was a lot of lobbing, and they felt slightly sheepish and embarrassed about it because a two-set match should not take six and a half hours, <laughs> and a rally should not take 643 strokes, you know, for someone to put the damn ball away, right? But it did. You, you got to email me that article now. I want to read it. Sure. Ever for those see, of you who yeah. would like to, for those of you who are listening who would like to find that article, um, just type in Dave Seminara, 643 shot tennis rally and it'll pop right up for you And the, the the name of the story is called the day they belabored the point i love it that's actually beyond intriguing and even if you're not a tennis fan that's beyond intriguing have you ever seen anyone read one of your publications or books in public no however i just had a great honor i was just in buffalo visiting my parents who live in a retirement home okay in buffalo new york called canterbury woods and it was awesome to go to a retirement community where my mom lives because my mom is sort of my PR and promotions person. So every time we'd pass somebody, they'd say, oh, you got to go. You got to meet Catherine. You got to meet Mary Lou. She's one of your big fans. So I actually just had a chance to meet a few women who were fans of my work um, at Canterbury Woods, which was <laughs> awesome. I felt like a rock star there because my mom has been promoting me at her retirement home relentlessly. So I think if, if I wanted to find someone who was reading one of my articles or books, I would just need to spend more time <laughs> at Canterbury because that's where the place where I'm most popular. You, uh, you moved around a lot, a few different states. You're down in the sun, uh, sunshine state now. That's where I want to retire. In a few months, I can retire. Best and worst thing about living in Florida? The best thing about living in Florida is that it is paradise for eight months of the year. The worst thing about living in Florida is that it is hellish for four, the other four months of the year. <laughs> no, seriously, uh, we don't have any um, we don't have a state income tax here that ranks pretty highly up there. Mm -hmm. um, what else can I say? I'll just refer back to my previous statement. It's correct. Eight months of the year. It's paradise here. Mad Travelers is your fourth book, I believe. So congratulations on each and every one. I know I have a ton of authors on finishing the book is like beyond an accomplishment. Um, before we talk about that, tell me about briefly about your other three and Footsteps of Federer because it fascinates me. I'm a tennis guy. So tell me how that Are even happened. That? I'm a Nadal guy, Rafael Nadal, so I don't get upset with me. But tell me about your other two books. Not sure. the Federer Let, one, yeah. 
Not the Federer one? No, no, because I, I know okay. about tennis. I want to talk about the other two. Okay. So first of all, the word breakfast is in the title of, of my other two books um, because breakfast is my favorite meal of the day and it's an obsession of mine. Other than travel, I'm also obsessed with eating delicious breakfast. Okay. Um, and I could have had the Federer book. Some people were saying I should have called it Breakfast with Federer so that I could have three books in a row with the word breakfast in the title. <laughs> However, I thought it was false advertising because I, I did not actually eat breakfast with Roger Federer, so I didn't do that. Um, the first book is called Bed, Breakfast, and Drunken Threats, Dispatches from the Margins of Europe. And the second book is called Breakfast with Polygamists, Dispatches from the Margins of the Americas. So these are books that collect travel stories that I've written from different parts of the world. Obviously, the first book is focused on Europe. I call it the margins of Europe because most of the stories are about obscure corners of Europe or obscure subcultures in Europe that most people are not familiar with. So this is not a book about Paris, Rome, London. Um, and the second book is the margins of the Americas because it's obscure places in North and South America. And these are travel stories and the, the titles come from stories that were written uh, in the book. So Bed, Breakfast and Drunken Threats is a story about a very weird night that I spent with a family in Georgia, not the U.S. state of Georgia, but in the country of Georgia in the Caucasus Mountains. I went to this uh, small village where I thought there was going to be a Soviet era hotel. There was no hotel. But a man um, took me into his home and said, you can stay with us for five dollars per night. And uh, we're going to feed you, too. This was sort of like we didn't really communicate well. But it turned out that he took that $5 that I paid him, and he went and got stinking drunk. And then he came back, and I was sitting next to his wife on the couch, and he got a little crazy and didn't remember who I was. And he was pissed drunk. And the story is about the evening that I spent with them. And so it's called Bed, Breakfast, and Drunken Threats because that's sort of what I got. <laughs> Traveling writing can sort of pigeonhole you. Um, were you nervous writing Mad Travelers? Because um, it should be have it should have an expanded audience, and I believe it does. But do you get worried writing a travel book that's like a smaller like you know if you don't travel, are you going to read this? Does that ever get you nervous? Uh yes, I do wish more people would read my book, <laughs> and preferably purchase it. Don't get it from the library or one of the used copies. <laughs> seriously, um, there aren't a lot of the publishing industry has soured. I think on travel writing mm -hmm. generally. There aren't a lot of travel books that come out. So unless you're Cheryl Strayed, um, it should be it should be, you know, of wide, you know, of wide interest to people because so many people love travel. However, um, there aren't a lot of great travel books that have come out in recent years. So therefore, when you go to Barnes and Noble or some other bookstore, the travel writing section is very small in this country, mm -hmm. which is sad. You go to the United Kingdom. And you go to the travel section and the travel sections are huge yep. because in Britain, there have been so many great books and so many authors that have focused on travel and exploration that it's a it's a unique category that people look for in bookstores. That has not happened in our country for one reason or another that I don't really understand. So I think publishers are somewhat down on travel books and it's difficult. Believe me, this book was not easy to get published. Um, it took me several years and I actually was rejected um, this book. Um, the, I took, I had the concept in 2015 wow. at that time. I had, at that time I had a literary agent and who turned out to be a snake oil salesperson, but that will leave that for another topic. But this guy tried selling this book to every major publishing house in America in 2015, back when it was not written, it was just an idea. Basically you sell books, you know, based upon a proposal, a nonfiction book. So I created a proposal for this book. And at that time I didn't know anything about William Bakeland. 
It was just going to be a book about wanderlust. And every major publisher in the United States said, thanks, but no thanks. Interesting idea, but we don't think that people will buy this book. And I thought, I do not care. I'm going to move forward and write this book anyways, because I have been afflicted with travel addiction and wanderlust. And there's no book out there which explains that. And I'm going to write this book and enjoy myself, even if nobody reads it. And so over the course of the next six years or so, I did exactly that. And the story of the book changed when I found a story, a central story, that I thought epitomized wanderlust better than any other. And so the book changed a lot um, during the course of the research and getting to know some of the world's most traveled people. The book changed quite a bit, and I was able to get it published, but it was a long journey. Let's talk about it. No spoilers today because uh, I don't want to ruin your investigation that you did. William Bakelin, con artist, not a con artist, he offered to help all these crazy travelers reach some of these remote places. And we're not talking Georgia or London, some locations that I'd never even heard of, and I'm an obsessive traveler. So, so far, so yeah. good on the description of it? Very good. When did you first come across William? I came first came across William back in 2015, a very long time ago, because at that time I was trying to I, I had a production company I was working with. I was working with them. I had sold them on the concept of doing a story about that follows the world's most traveled people around the world in their quest to reach the ends of the earth. So this production company was trying to sell this uh, series that I had envisioned to various networks. And I was asking many of the world's most traveled people, what happened was most of these guys are white males who are old mm -hmm. and television production companies and television networks are not so interested in stories about <laughs> white males who are in their 60s and 70s. So they came back to me after pitching various networks, including National Geographic and BBC and other ones and said, we're getting the same feedback from every network. And that's that these guys are all too old. And we need more diversity. Are there any women? Are there young women? Are there pretty women? Oh, you know, preferably. <laughs> and so I, I doubled back to, you know, my my characters from the show. And I said, hey, guys, here's the feedback we're getting. We need some young people. Who do you suggest? And they all came back with the same two words, William Bakeland. And they said, you've got to meet this young man, William Bakeland, because he's a billionaire. And he's, you know, good looking young man. He's very articulate. He speaks with a posh British accent. And he's only 20 at the time. He was only 21 years old and he's been almost to every country in the world. And I, I, I said, that sounds perfect. William Bakeland. OK, so um, I approached William via email and said, are you interested? I would love to speak with you. And he set a number of different dates with me to speak with me. I told the production company, the production company, they were jumping out of their cubicles in the office. They were so excited about this young British billionaire who was so dashing and wonderful. They thought this is going to be great. So we thought that William was going to save our show because all the networks rejected us. And so William, I thought, was going to be my savior. However, the problem was, <laughs> although <laughs> William, William kept politely telling me that he was going to uh, agree to be interviewed by the production company and me, he kept stiffing us. At the appointed hour, he would not call in. And then I think what happened is he got scared is that he thought somebody like me, he looked me up. He's a very intelligent person. He obviously looked me up and thought, eh. he thought better of the idea of cooperating with me. And so for a period of three or four years, I, I, I forgot about it. And then I never heard the name William Bakeland again. 
except occasionally from some of my traveler friends, they would mention him. But William Bakeland was essentially dead to me from 20, late 2015 until 2018 or 2019 because he stiffed me and I thought he was going to be my savior and he didn't pan out. And then how did he reenter your life? He reentered my life one day when I saw the subject line of an email from Harry Mitsidis, who is one of the world's most traveled people. Sure. The subject, the subject line of the email said, Apocalypse Now, a crisis in our travel community. That was something I clicked right into. What is this? And, you know, Will, uh, you know, uh, Harry did this, you know, investigation into William. And he told us very succinctly that nothing that we thought we knew about this young, quote unquote, billionaire was actually true. And I thought, wow, here it is. And at this point, I was, you know, maybe midway through researching my book. And I thought, but I, I wasn't getting far enough into it because I didn't want to just have a book about Wanderlust. I wanted to have one central story that demonstrated Wanderlust better than any other. And when I got this email from Harry, immediately I thought, that's it. This is going to be the central story of my book. Not the only story, but the central story, central narrative of the book, because the tale of William Bakeland, you know, epitomized not only William's wanderlust of him doing all these things to fund his own travel, but also the wanderlust of these travelers who were willing to believe in him because they wanted to get to these places so badly that they put their better judgment aside. Well, that's kind of my next thing, because these trips, obviously, they weren't to regular countries, these crazy places. But he offered to help these extreme travelers go to these places that they thought they could never get to. So how did these seasoned travelers, and like you said, a lot of them older white dudes, a ton of money, how did they uh, get scammed by this young kid? Was it tunnel vision? Part of it, I think, is that I think it, it varies from person to person. But you have to understand that this is a very group a very determined group of men, <clears throat> okay, number one. And so they really wanted to get to these places, and these are places like Bouvet, Norway's Bouvet Island, Palmyra Island. Many of these places are islands, and they are extraordinarily difficult to get to. You cannot go onto Expedia <laughs> and book a, book a package tour to Palmyra Island or Bouvet Island or any of these other islands, right? So you need someone to figure this out. Now, William was, as I think someone very aptly put it, he was literally expanding the map, meaning that he had successfully taken a number of these guys to places they thought were impossible to get to, right? So he proved himself as what I called the rock star of the extreme travel community. He got people to places they thought were impossible. So he became a legend. And so it was that track record of success that enabled him to push them further. That was my original hiccup with the story because he met these people, some of these travelers, on some of these wild trips. So he was actually going on some of these places. It was kind of like um, like the Tinder swindler on Netflix. He did the right. he did, you know he would take one girl on a private jet. She's like, "Oh, this dude's legit. I'll give him money." Is that kind of what he was doing? Because he he met a lot of these travelers on some of these trips. Correct? Yes, he did. And so, as you, you'll read when you when you read the book, listeners. There were many things about William that we thought we knew that we did not know that were true, untrue, that were false. However, the one true thing about him is that he was just as afflicted with wanderlust as all the rest of us. And so his desire to get to these weird and unusual places was legitimate. And it started when he was a young man. It started when he was a young man. 
and he still is young man. He's only in his 20s. But this was something that he did not fake. You couldn't fake his knowledge of geography and his mm -hmm. passion for travel. It was legitimate and authentic. Let me ask you this. As an author, you travel to the UK writing books. Do you always feel that you want to go to the location to get a more feel of the story, walking like uh, footsteps? With Federer, do you feel you always want to go to the place? Does that give you more of a feel of the person? Does it help you out as an author? Absolutely. So I had to walk the footsteps of William's neighborhood to feel it and to verify it. Because you can read, oh, someone was grew up in a working class environment or whatever. You don't know that. You don't know it until you walk those streets. You cannot rely upon someone else's interpretation, right? So the same thing with Federer. I had to see the houses where Federer owns with my own eyes to understand it and to believe it. I love walking in footsteps. Have you reached out? I know he reached out to you. We're not going to play spoiler alert. Have you heard from him? Any? Are you still obsessed with him? Because, you know, when authors write a book about someone, you your life's immersed in them. Are you, yep. Do you still care about him? Are you still looking him up? Google alerts? I still care about him very much. Um, I don't mean that personally, like, you know, like, you know. Stalking. I <laughs> Right. I don't care about him in that way, but I'm interested in him and his story. Weirdly enough, for a period of about a year after the book came out, William and I were in very frequent contact. Text messaging and emailing a lot of, for a couple of reasons. First of all, he thought the book was going to be a complete hit piece and very unfair to him. And he actually ended up liking the book. That's great. That's great. Because unlike all the you know articles that were written about him in the Daily Mail and other things, is that I took the time to <clears throat> correspond with him and to put his side of the story in there. So he felt that I was as fair as I could have been under the circumstances. And he felt that the book helped shed light on his own travel compulsion. So he said that he found it very sort of revealing and that he looked at his own travels and his own tr travel desires in a different way after reading the book. So he really became, I guess I would say, a fan. He liked the book a lot, and then he started reading lots of other things that I've written and liked those too. And when I'd have an article that would come out, I would hear from William frequently saying, I read your article about whatever, and it was really good. And to be honest, we had a lot of really good conversations, never never on the phone, because he didn't like talking on the phone, but by email. We had an epistolary friendship, let's say. And I would hear from him via text and so on and so forth. And you know, he told me that he purchased a home in the U.S. And, you know, he was at one point he was telling me that he was going to be coming to Florida and that he would meet up with me and all this stuff. And uh, I was hearing from him frequently, maybe once or twice a week for a period of six months to a year. Wow. And then all of a sudden, then all of a sudden, nothing disappeared off the face of the earth, stopped replying to emails and texts. And for, let's say, almost a year now, I have not heard a word from him, and I do not know where he is. He swindled a bunch of you know wealthy people, some people who just put all that money into traveling. Do we have any idea of how much he allegedly stole? Is that a number that people actually know? Because I know people don't want to actually yeah. say, oh, I, oh, we do, okay. So, there were many um, alleged victims who did not come forward or detail how much they lost because they were embarrassed, Right. But of those who came forward, we're in the ballpark of seven hundred thousand dollars, seven or eight hundred thousand. Is he wanted? That is a very good question. As far as I know, there are different police forces in Europe who have investigated his case, 
and the investigations could be ongoing in France and in Ireland. However, I don't believe I don't believe that he is a wanted man, as in like he's not a wanted man in the sense that there is no active warrants for him. Like you can't go on the Interpol website sure. and type his name in and say, okay, there's an active warrant there. Now, um, does that mean that you know is it possible that if he entered a certain country, there wouldn't be something in their computer saying, hey, let's detain this guy? That's very possible. But there are no public warrants for his arrest that I'm aware of. What did you think about the HBO documentary series uh, Operation Generation Hustle? Was that it? What did you yeah, think about Gener- that? Um, Generation Hustle had its um, had its moments. That was yeah. another thing that William and I corresponded about a lot because I got an advanced copy of that, and he was very, very eager to see it. And so he and I had uh, had a lot of conversations about that, and he was very unhappy with the way that they portrayed him because they were trying to woo him to participate. And uh, for a period of time, he was considering participating in their show, and then he decided not to. <laughs> um, Generation Hustle is good, but it only tells part of the story. And the character that they hired, the actor that they hired to play William, I don't think was very accurate depiction of who he is. Your book is about more than just William Bakelin, which you mentioned. It's about the subculture of elite travelers and wanderlust going to these locations. Were you familiar with some of these locations? Because you're a seasoned traveler. Were you even familiar with some of these locations? No. So one of the things that led me onto this project was I got curious about who the world's most traveled people are. And so I interviewed Don Parrish, who is one of the world's most traveled people. At the time, I lived in Chicago, and so did so did Don. So we met up together, and Don bought brought a briefcase with him, <clears throat> detailing with detailed itineraries. This is a guy who's so organized; he has a laminated printed itinerary wherever he goes, and he gives each trip a number, so he can tell you that trip number forty-three was going to Lithuania in nineteen seventy-nine or whatever. And Amazing. He could tell you he could tell you the twelve goals he had for that trip and everything, right? So Don started telling me about different places he was trying to get to that were still on his list of places that he hadn't been to. And I felt ashamed because I thought I was a geography geek and a guy who was very good at geography. I didn't know a damn thing about any of these places he was talking about. And I felt completely confused by the entire interview. And so that had me hooked onto a little subculture that I didn't know anything about of country collecting. And I detail some of the, some of these interesting characters in the book. You do. And you know what I love that you de- delved into? Because you talked about the psyche of travelers. It's weird because no one in my family ever traveled. My mom went to Chicago when she was 13 and Vegas when she was like 50. That was it. And I'm obsessed with it. So no one in my family anywhere traveled. So when you started talking about the psyche of traveling and you did tests on yourself, dude, that was fascinating. Yeah. And was was that important? Because now you could have did a whole book about travelers, Parrish and William Bakelin. Yeah. Did you know you wanted to do a book like that? I know that was the original idea, but did you want to make sure you stayed um, true to yourself with that part? Yeah, I, I wanted to look into the genetic aspect of this, right? Because I was trying to understand and to unravel wanderlust and to figure out, is this genetic or is it social? Is it, you know, based upon what you're experiential? And so, yes, I did take a, a DNA test to see if I had this so-called wanderlust gene. <laughs> so this is where this is where another origin of the book came from, is that why also I was inspired. 2014, I believe it was, um, National Geographic ran a cover story about the so-called wanderlust gene. And I thought, wanderlust gene? I was fascinated by this story because I wanted to know if my wanderlust was genetic or not, because 
I have six brothers, five brothers, sorry, there's six of us in the family. And some of us are really into travel and some of us are not into travel at all. My mom is very into travel. So I thought, well, is this genetic? Maybe there's a genetic answer to the question, you know? Um, but so I had to do a lot of, my wife works for a hospital and I had to kind of, um, <laughs> rely upon friends of friends in order to get this test done. Um, and so I was tested for the wanderlust gene and the result of that test, I will just say, because this is not a, this is in the book, but I don't think it's a, you know, a major, major part of the book. So I don't mind. I don't like it when authors refuse to tell people about something that happened and say, oh, you have to buy the book. So I'll just tell you that I did not have the Wanderlust gene. I had zero copies of it. I could have either had one copy of it or two copies. I had zero copies of the Wanderlust gene. Did that surprise you? So, yes. And it disappointed me greatly, as I, I mentioned in the book. I wanted to have the Wanderlust <laughs> gene because I thought that would be a really cool thing to have, right? And it would, ex it, would ex it would be a neat and tidy explanation for my restlessness. But I did not have the gene. And so, therefore, it caused me to believe that this is not just a genetic thing. And I think genetics are too complicated to boil things down to, oh, you either have something in your gene or you don't. Are you a country counter? Yourself, personally, am, you're a big traveler. I, have, I am becoming a country collector only because I've gotten to know all these people from the book. My attitude towards country collecting has changed <clears throat> 180 degrees. I used to think that this was vanity and sort of pointless um, exercise. I don't think so anymore. I think it's actually – it broadens your horizons to do this because I think that if you do not count countries, if you're not a country collector, you tend to just keep going back to the same old places over and over again. And you go back to your favorite places. I mean I know people who go to – who have been to Italy 50 times. God bless them. That's great. I've been to Italy a few times. I love Italy or whichever country, but you're missing a lot of other places. And I think country collecting forces you to get outside of your comfort zone. And I think in an age of over tourism, when the world's most popular places are too damned crowded, mm -hmm. I'm very happy if people start going to, instead of going to um, Italy, if they decide to go to Libya instead, great. Then that means that Italy will be less crowded. And spread the wealth because travel is the world's biggest industry. And I think it's great if obscure countries get a little bit more tourism. I have my little one sheet here. And here's what I wrote. Uh, X, and don't go back to your favorite places because I agree with that. Because one, you, you, you said it best in the book too. It's not going to live up to the potential. You might have had the greatest time ever in Bangkok. You're going to go back to try to relive it. And like you said, you're not expanding yourself. You, you're doing the same thing for the same results. It's never the same. And I'll tell you. When I go back to places, especially if I haven't been there in a very long time, I'm almost always disappointed if it was a great time there the first time. Now, the other thing can happen, too, where maybe you went to a country or a place first mm -hmm. time and you didn't have the greatest experience. You might go back a second time and it might be better. Maybe the first time you were there, the weather sucked or something else, something bad happened. Maybe, uh, who knows, maybe you got pickpocketed. Second time, it could be better. But if you go to a place and you love it, you try going back again, especially if it's years later, invariably it will be worse. How many countries have you visited? 70-something. I think I'm at like 74. Oh, that's a nice It number. depends, of course, what countries you, you count as a country to. Like, now that is my country count of sovereign UN nations. Now, yes. it gets complicated when you start talking about other sorts of countries. 
like the Traveler Century Club, for example, yeah, it's, their it's list, much... they include different things like various islands that aren't, you know, sovereign nations. I do not include those things. If you include, start including like the TCC stuff, mm-hmm. I'm at almost 100, but of like sovereign countries that have a seat at the UN, I think I'm at 74, though I got to I got to tally that up. Oh, that's a nice number. Uh, any cool trips coming up? Yeah. So this speaks to your, you asking me if I'm a country collector. So where I'm going this summer answers the question, I guess, that I am. Okay. Because I'm going to four countries in Europe that I've never been to in Europe. And I've been to almost every country in Europe. I, Dave, I just did this. I'm, I'm going to cut you off. I just did two of these trips. I just did the Balkans uh, four months ago. And what was it? Uh, maybe one month ago, I went to Moldova, Ukraine, country I've never been to just to count. So, yes, I feel. Oh, so let me hear you fantastic. four. Let me hear you four. Uh, Finland and the three Baltic countries. Awesome. My wife and I did that. I'm doing one um, in nine days. We're going to Fiji. And we're, nice. we're doing, yeah, we're doing, again, country counting. We're doing a, a layover, a two day layover in Vanuatu just to get that because when else oh, am I going to be God. over there? And then, wow. uh, yeah, then we're going to finish up with. Um, with New Zealand and uh, Australia, of course. Do you have kids or no? No kids, no kids. That's why my here's that's, the, yes. Here's the thing: these South Pacific countries and also African countries. I travel. We we take big trips in the summertime. Where we usually go away for a month, something like that. The airfares are what stop me because the issue is when I, I'm buying four tickets. I have two kids that you, I you can't do it. Me. It's impossible. If you try to buy four airline tickets to Vanuatu. Or to Burkina Faso. Mm-hmm. Good luck. Good luck. That's my whole budget for the whole trip right there. And I, you know, I'd have to sleep on the streets like a homeless person. <laughs> Terrible. Uh, getting off travel for a second. Doing the footstep pieces you do, boots on the ground, old school detective mm-hmm. work. What's the biggest hur- hurdle you face? Because you interviewed Roger Federer. It's like, are you crazy? So these hurdles, what do you face when you're like, I'm going to go walk in the footsteps. I'm going to do a deep dive into Kurt Cobain, Doc Emmerich, Escobar. Yeah. What's the biggest hurdle you well, face? Uh, uncooperative sources. Like, for example, the most recent one that I was asked to do was the Spectator magazine asked me to do one about Ron DeSantis. So Ron DeSantis is, <laughs> for, for very good reason, I don't blame him, but he's very, he's not cooperative with media because the media is, you know, 99% liberal and they hate his guts. So trying to find like his old teachers, you know, schoolyard friends, there's a complete wall of silence there. Trying to, I wanted to interview his mom and dad. Forget about it. Not interested. No, no interest in cooperating with me whatsoever, even though I am conservative. So uh, uncooperative. So what I had to do in that case was find out where his parents lived. And I was nervous as hell, but I just went and I rang their doorbell because I thought, this is what you do when you're scared you overcome that fear and you just do it and guess what even if they throw you out or they spit on you or they won't talk to you then you have a scene for your story so i went and i rang their doorbell and his parents were very nice they answered it they live in the same house that he grew up in. wow okay yes and it turns out that it is a very something that the media has never reported which i found very interesting is right because there's sort of a there's there's a war in the Republican Party now between the Trump people and the DeSantis people. And Trump is seen to be capturing the blue collar vote mm-hmm. and DeSantis is seen to be the you know college educated vote. Right. Well, it's interesting because their personal backgrounds are exact opposite. He grew up with a lot of money. DeSantis grew up in a very working class neighborhood, which is really interesting to see. 
So it was a very modest home that his family purchased. They've been living there since the 1980s. Wow. I was I was able to look around. I could look on Zillow and see that, okay, his, Zillow thinks that his house uh, is worth $310,000. That is very interesting because in Florida, you don't get much for $310,000 no. anymore. Um, so, I, you know, I rang their doorbell and, you know, I, first it took a long time. They weren't answering. And I thought, oh, good, they're not here. Because at this point, I was like scared because I don't like going to people's doors like, without an appointment. You know, the, I'm, I get nervous even though I've written these things a thousand times because this is the parents of the governor. Like, could yeah. I be, could I be could I be arrested for of this? Of course, I get yeah. in trouble. I don't know. So then, all of a sudden, a man comes to the door. I'm like, uh oh, somebody is coming to the door. Like now, I'm almost afraid. And it turns out it is Ron DeSantis Sr. answering the door. Oh, your media. And I said, yeah, but uh, I'm not. Oh, I tried to talk past him. Please talk to me. And he said, oh, and it, it was bad timing because a reporter from the New Yorker magazine had just been there a few months before and he wrote like a complete hit piece and they did talk to him, which they weren't supposed to do. So he kind of poisoned the well for me. And he's like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You know, like the campaign, you know, my son's office has told us we can't speak to media, blah, blah, blah. And I said, no problem. I had to try. You know, I appreciate it. And he's like, oh, no, he was real nice. He talked to me for a minute or two. And then he closed the door. And then I'm walking away towards my car. And I hear a female voice calling out to me, Dave, Dave. I looked around. Who is this? I turn around and there's a woman with a large boot on her foot and leg who's hobbling, like hopping on one foot out of the house towards me. I thought, oh, my God. And then I thought, and it's like, this is Ron's mother. This is Ron DeSantis' mother coming out. And I thought, great. She's going to talk to me. She comes out into the driveway and is like, I heard about your story because I'd been creeping around by this point. I was stalking everybody. I'd called his elementary school, his high school. So the Catholic school that he went to uh, in junior high called the house and said he what? requested an interview. He requested an interview with us to find a teacher that he grew up with, should we do it or not? So he says, so she said, Ron school called me. So I know about your story. She said, I would really like to talk to you. She said, um, but I can't because they told us after that last article that came out, we really oh. can't. But she was very nice. Like we just made small talk for a few minutes and she was very sweet about it. And um, I had sent them a letter prefacing this, which they said they never received because before I just showed up to ring their doorbell, I sent them a letter in the mail. Because I didn't want to totally cold call them. Of course. But, but the father said he never got my letter. So I thought, that's really weird. So I drive home, right? And I thought, okay, at least I met his parents, you know? I drive home, and there's an email from Ron DeSantis Sr. in my inbox. And I thought, whoa, now this is cool. He looked me up. He went onto my website. And the subject line of the letter said, we got your letter after all. And it turned out that they had been away for a few days, and one of their neighbors had picked up their mail. Come on. Yeah. And he said, I didn't want you to think that we were lying about not getting your letter. What a solid said, dude. Yeah. Yeah. And he said, I, I, I spent some time on your website and I really like your work. And one thing, he has Italian heritage. I wrote an article about Christopher Columbus several mm -hmm. years ago, which he really liked. He happened to click into that. And then he had a few comments to make about the Christopher Columbus article that I wrote. And um, I thought, this is great. You know, I've now the door is open. So I responded back and I said, that's great, so on and so forth. And then I thought, okay, now he's emailing me. Let's ask some questions. So I asked him a bunch of questions and he never responded again. That's actually really so, interesting though. 
I just wanted to give you that's a that's a sausage like how the sausage is made. Um, look for your listeners about how footsteps articles go, especially if it's a famous person. Yeah, not easy. One more interview question because I'm the biggest Yankee fan in the world. I got two Yankee seats from Yankee Stadium right next to me. And I've had the opportunity to sit down with Mo, Mariano Rivera, a bunch of times, and it still blows my mind. So being a tennis fanatic, interviewing Federer, nervous about it? How'd you go about it? Did you love it? Were you, did you critique yourself afterwards? Okay. So let me explain how this happened. My footsteps of Federer journey was not about trying to get an interview with Roger Federer. I even thought from the very beginning, the book, the subheading of the book is A Fan's Pilgrimage. And so I was writing that as a fan. I did not request any interview with Roger Federer at all. I did get a, I just wanted to creep around and hear things from people who knew him. And I wanted to play tennis at the place where he's played tennis and meet people who know him, but not like trying to get an interview with his best friend. But like, you know, you learn a lot about uh, famous athletes based upon how they treat little people. The guy who works in the locker room, the guy who sweeps the courts. I wanted to meet people like that. And to see what was their brush with Federer like being at these clubs and such, right? So I did not request any interview at all for him when I was writing my book. I did go to a tournament. It turned out to be the last tournament that he won, the, the Swiss Indoors. Uh, he won it in 2019. I was there for that. And unfortunately, that turned out to be his last tournament win, but I was there for it. And I did have a press pass. So I was able to ask him a bunch of questions in the, um, uh, you know, in the uh, press conferences after his matches. And I was the only English speaker at those press conferences, and they started with English. So every after each match, I was the first guy who would get to ask him questions. So he knew me by the end of the tournament, right? But um, in any event, I would be nervous asking him questions in press conferences, but not super nervous. Now, then the book comes out. A few months later, I get a call from Swiss Tourism one day. And a very nice woman, they had read the book, and she said uh, – this is something top secret because it hasn't been announced yet, but Roger is going to become an unpaid spokesperson for Swiss tourism. And we think given your book, it's a perfect tie in that you would be the one to interview him about traveling in Switzerland. And I said, oh, really, that would be great. And she said, I don't know when it's going to happen. We're still waiting on the details, et cetera, et cetera. But we'll, we'll let you know. I didn't hear anything for a few months and I thought, Oh, well, I guess I'm not going to get to interview Roger after all. Then one morning, I was about heading on my way out the door to go to a doctor's appointment, and I get, a, I get a phone call from this woman. She said, are you ready to interview Roger? And I said, yeah. When? Now, Dave, let me she cut you said, off. Did you have questions already prepared? Like after she said no. that, did you do your prep? Okay. No. <laughs> she said – and it was at like it was like 10 a.m., right? And, she, and, I, and I said, well, no, when? And thinking she was going to say, okay, two weeks from today. She said, in an hour. I said, wait, in an, like an hour from right now? And she said, yeah. And I said, oh, well, I said, I'm leaving the house. I'm on my way to a doctor's appointment. She's like, are you serious? She's like, you're not going to do the interview with Roger? And I said, no, you're right. I am going to do the interview with Roger. I'm dancing. Okay, let me get ready for this, right? So, and then um, I start preparing my questions, right? I've got an hour to get ready for this call. I'm in a Zoom. This is during the pandemic, right? I'm in a Zoom with Roger. That's sick, by the way. One-on-one, right? So I'm preparing my questions. Then five minutes before the appointed hour when Roger's supposed to call me, she calls back and she said, okay, his agents just said, um, wanted to remind you that you can't talk about your book. And I said, okay, why is that? And they said, well, because Rogers, you know, has so many different people wanting to him to promote their, you know, their books about him or their films or their documentaries or this, that, or the other thing. And he doesn't promote any 
any products related to him. So you can't mention that. I thought, oh, that's really weird and unfortunate. But he was amazing. I mean, he – I've interviewed a lot of athletes. This guy, for a half an hour, focus was entirely locked on me. Wow. Didn't look at, didn't look at his watch once. Didn't look down to his phone once. It was amazing. It was an incredible 30 minutes. He and I, I don't know how it happened. We totally hit it off. We were laughing. You know, the questions that I asked him were totally off the wall. He'd never heard some of them before. It wasn't the usual stuff. And we weren't talking about tennis. So I think for, for him, it was fun. And we, we had a great half hour Zoom. That's great. All right. I had you for an hour already, taking up your time, ready to finish up with some quick hit questions. Yeah. Best Villanova basketball player ever is? Chris Jenkins, because he hit the winning shot. To win okay, the okay. Title. I was going to say, really? Brunson, Kerry Kittles, Lowry? No. Okay. No, and the fact that Jenkins never made the NBA doesn't mean doesn't mean a thing to me. I'm a Villanova fan. Okay, very fair. That's a good answer. How about this? It might be Roger, but you and I are at a bar here in New York City. Do you have any cool people in your phone that if you texted them, they would text you back? Um, yes, I do have one dear friend who is a famous person, but I don't want to say who. Oh, how about uh, John? That's a terrible answer. Yeah, that is a bad answer. That's okay. I'll, I'll give it to you. Is there a reason? <laughs> Usually people like to name drop, but I, I respect that. How about favorite travel book besides your own? Almost all of Paul Theroux's books, but especially okay. I, I'd say my favorite one is The Great Rail- Railway Bazaar, which was his very first one. How about favorite travel show or movie? Let's come back to that. I can't think of one off the top of my head. Okay. One sporting event in history. You oh, wait. Re- I'm sorry. I know. I used to really like the show Globe Tracker. And okay. I specifically liked one host, Ian Ian Wright, I think his last name is, because he's a crazy British guy. Okay. So any any Globe Tracker episode with Ian Wright, no matter, no matter what the destination is, the guy was so crazy and fun that I liked watching him. One sporting event in history you wish you could have witnessed live. See, I can't think of any because all of the most important sporting events of my life have been failures, have been losses, and I'm glad that I wasn't at them. We went to the Super Bowl, the Bills, all four years of my college career, freshman, sophomore, junior, senior. We lost each one of them. Oh. So the op- And I went to the second one um, against the Redskins. So actually, no, I'm sorry. Villanova winning – Villanova beating North Carolina when Chris Jenkins hitting the winning shot, 2017-28. Yeah, that's the one right there. And how about this last one? I don't know if this even applies to you. Coolest piece of memorabilia you own. It can be sports, travel, whatever. If there's any something happened, fire in the house. I'm going to grab one piece of memorabilia. What is it? Okay, I'm not going to call this memorabilia. And I'm sorry that the podcast um, listeners won't be able to actually see this because I'm going to go get it so that you could at least see it. Okay. I have a I have a very unique bottle of Rakia, which Rakia is a like a is a is a famous liquor in the mm-hmm. you were just traveling in the Balkans and you probably had some rakia yes. while you were there. But I had someone, a friend in Macedonia before I left the country. Oh my god, that's sick. Give me this amazing bottle of rakia that is a it is a it is cross shaped is is Jesus on the cross. It is it depicts the crucifixion and it is a cross shaped bottle of rakia that's very beautifully made and this bottle is from 2004. And I still have not opened it. And I'm only going to drink this thing when I'm on my deathbed. So I'm waiting until right before I die. I'm going to drink this entire huge bottle. That's actually a really good piece. I'm glad you showed that to me. Dave, dude, this was a blast. I hope we can grab a beer in Florida, New York, or some random country one day. But I'll put it on my Twitter and everything. But plug where everyone can follow you. Your website's awesome. I love that you have the complete list of woke companies. You have a million things going on on your website. So plug your Twitter, (laughs) Instagram, website, and everything, brother. 
Yes. So go to my website, daveseminar.com. My other important things to check out are if you're interested in my travel videos, I have a YouTube channel called Mad Traveler. And just like my book, but it's not, it's singular instead of Mad Travelers, it's Mad Traveler. Um, my Instagram is Mad Traveler Dave. 